0: It's the middle of the 1700s, and the Jews of Eastern Europe are struggling with a kind of existential boredom. Morale, then, was low. There was a prevailing sense of discouragement and ennui. The previous 100 years had been particularly rough. The Thirty Years' War in the early 1600s had visited disaster upon the Jews, along with the rest of the continent. Then, just as that ended, the Cossack Rebellion in 1648 brought unspeakable violence, probably the worst until the Holocaust. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were murdered then, including around half the Jewish population of Ukraine. And there were some own goals as well. The past century had seen the rise and fall of two false messiahs, which devastated Jewish identity and devotion. First, Shabbatai Zvi in the 1600s, and then Jacob Frank in the 1700s, had claimed to be the Messiah, raising expectations that suffering had not been in vain, that oppression was coming to an imminent end, that this was the season of redemption. When such hopes were shattered, the result was crushing. So the 1700s found Jews retreating into themselves, not so much separate from non-Jews, although there was that, but more an inward circling of the wagons. Out was anything that could challenge a rock-steady Jewish identity that, in search of stability, adhered ever more closely to Jewish law. As Jewish community leaders lost themselves in arcane Talmudic study, ordinary Jews were left with rote rituals, legalistic lifestyles and a cultural emphasis that felt obligatory rather than voluntary. Millions of Jews seemed destined to just kind of muddle through their Judaism. What they needed was a jolt of electricity to wake them from their listlessness. Instead of a jolt, they got a thunderous tsunami of inspiration that swept clear across Eastern Europe in the late 1700s, propelled by the extraordinary charismatic force of Israel ben Eliezer. He became known as the Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name, and ignited the revolution that we call Hasidism. This is our second to last episode of season six here. Ten Jewish philosophers you ought to know. I'm your host, Jason Harris. And this is Jew I don't know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Judaism in Eastern Europe in the mid 1700s was on the back foot. There was, of course, the usual oppression and violence coming from the outside world, but we're talking beyond that, a kind of internal listlessness affecting millions of Jews who were scratching out an impoverished existence in the rural hinterlands, far from the big cities, far from the great centers of learning, far from access to the great texts from which to study. The Talmudic scholars were ensconced in their academies, with little of their learning or teaching reaching the masses. Rabbis were less spiritual community leaders than stern scholars, demanding their congregations hew ever more scrupulously to the exactitudes of halakha, Jewish law. Jewish life had become fairly rote. Traditional practices and ritual worship had become obligatory, performative, bereft of a deep sense of purpose and devotion. The word you often hear used to describe this internal state of being is legalistic. In 1955, the great 20th-century Jewish philosopher Martin Buber wrote a book called The Legend of the Baal Shem about the early years of Hasidism and its founder. Buber writes that since their beginnings, the Jews have produced myths. Myths, wrote Buber, that express, quote, the fullness of existence, end quote. Religion tries to fight against this, since religion is trying to simplify what Buber calls the, quote, wildly engulfing forces that invade us, end quote. By the 1700s, religion was winning. Buber wrote that, quote, the further the exile progressed and the crueler it became, so much the more necessary appeared the preservation of religion for the preservation of nationality, and so much the stronger became the position of the law, end quote. Myth, said Buber, fled into two places, the Kabbalah and the Folk Saga. Kabbalah, as you might remember from the episode on Isaac Luria, was the extremely high-level mystical framework known and studied by only a select few. On the other hand, Buber writes that Folk Saga, what we call folklore or folktales, quote, lived in fact among the people and filled its existence with waves of light and melody, but it considered itself a paltry thing that barely had the right to exist. It kept itself hidden in the furthest corner, and did not dare to look the law in the eye, much less desire to be a power alongside it. End quote. In other words, the Jews, fearful of the dangerous world around them, retreated into the comforts of the law as a kind of turtle shell to protect their faith and identity. But then, writes Buber, there suddenly arose, quote, a movement in which myth purified and elevated itself. End quote. This was Hasidism. The people rediscovered myth and mysticism and joined it with folk saga, an extraordinary process of Jewish rebirth and renewal. Buber writes, quote, And in the dark, despised East, among simple, unlearned villagers, the throne was prepared for the child of a thousand years. End quote. That child was born Israel ben Eliezer. Israel, son of Eliezer, sometime between 1690 and 1700, in a small village in what is today Western Ukraine. No one could have predicted who he would become. The stories and legends of the Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name, are such that we could be forgiven for thinking he perhaps wasn't a real person. He was a man of magic, healing, revelation, divine knowledge, and extrasensory perception. (laughs) But thanks to the tax records kept by secular Polish authorities, we know that he very much existed and even which house was his, although much of his early life is shrouded in mystery. The boy, Israel Ben Eliezer, was not born of any pedigree. But instead, just one amongst the great mass of Jews living in the small villages, the shtetls of Eastern Europe. He was orphaned at the age of five. He later recalled the last words of his dying father Fear no one but God. Love every Jew with all your heart and soul, no matter who he is. These two notions would define his life and teachings. He was adopted by a nearby village and raised there, but again, no one would have seen him bound for greatness. For millennia, Jews had revered scholarship in the intellectual life. Young Israel was not much for book learning, and by all accounts was absolutely not the kid who you would copy the class notes from. Instead, the legends have him spending much of his childhood wandering in the forests after school, deep in meditation and solitude. There he encountered a host of characters, mystics disguised as itinerant merchants. Great scholars imparting the wisdom of Torah, ancient prophets revealing hidden truths, and teachers walking him through the Talmud and Kabbalah. Now and again, the prophet Elijah and the prophet Achia would drop in to remind him that someday the world will be ready for his greatness and open to accepting his teachings. So right away, we have this important detail about the Baal Shem Tov that will later prove important. He was not a trained Talmudic scholar. He was not shall we say amongst the coastal elite in the meantime as he grew up started a family moved from place to place seeking work israel ben eliezer became what was known as a baal shem a master of the name name here being the divine name for a baal shem was someone who could harness the power of the divine for righteous purposes this was a title that had been around for a couple hundred years now coming out of germany the Baal Shem was a kind of shamanistic healer, powered by the Torah. The Israeli historian Moshe Rossman writes that, quote, Baalei Shem were specialists in magical defense, knowing how to wield Kabbalistic knowledge and rituals to protect people from the machinations of the demons who lurked everywhere, End quote. Israel Ben Eliezer used amulets and prayers to successfully cure people of disease and mental illness fixed in fertile couples, set broken bones, and stuff like that. Some scholars think that perhaps it was thanks to all the time he spent in the woods that he knew what others didn't about the healing properties of various plants and herbs, which seemed miraculous. His fame grew, and each magical cure, giving rise to even more exaggerated stories of healing. But it wasn't going beyond the usual Baal Shem duties that Israel ben Eliezer's name became revered throughout Eastern Europe. The Chabad movement, today's most well-known and widespread Hasidic sect, writes that quote, "As much as he aimed to cure his patients' physical illnesses, he sought to heal their ailing spirits. He taught them the importance that the Torah places on optimism and joy and encouraged them in their service of God." End quote. Moshe Ratzman writes that he, quote, went beyond helping individuals, employing his connections with the divine to try to avert or attenuate plagues and persecutions facing the Jewish community as a whole, end quote. For this, his followers added the word Tov, meaning good, to his name. Now he was known as the Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name, which was also shortened to his nickname, Besht. And by the mid-1700s, the best was about ready to bring his revelatory ideas to a Jewish world that desperately needed them. The Baal Shem Tov pioneered a whole new approach to Judaism one that rescued it from rote legalism and delivered it into the hands of the impoverished ordinary masses in a way that dramatically uplifted their lives. The best articulated three main points that became the foundation of Hasidism. Worship, joy, and that the divine can be found in every single act that we do. To the first point, worship. The best reacted to the religious scholars in the faraway cities and academies who insisted that the study of Torah was the most important Jewish act. Remember some of our previous philosophers like Maimonides or Spinoza who believed that the way to get closest to God was through intensive study, through intellectual devotion. That was all well and good for those who had access to the Talmudic texts and the finest schools, but it was far out of reach for the great majority of Jews in the shtetl hinterlands of Eastern Europe. So instead, the Baal Shem Tov reached for the Kabbalah, the great force of mystical Judaism. Remember our episode on Isaac Luria. A central focus of Kabbalah is the notion of these scattered bits of divine light that happened with creation. Our task is to seek repair, tikkun olam, repair of the world, by gathering up each bit of light. We accomplish this by each good deed. That is, every time we follow a commandment, we grab another little piece of light. The Baal Shem Tov used this powerful idea to center individual worship, insisting that sincere devotional prayer was just as good as any book learning. The writer Adam Kirsch relates a story in which a dull-witted boy who never learned to read Hebrew prayed on Yom Kippur by blowing a whistle. His father was embarrassed by such a disruptive display, but the best praised the boy. Kirsch writes that, quote, "...clearly, for the founder of Hasidism, God prefers the prayer of the inarticulate but sincere heart to rote formulas." End quote. The Baal Shem Tov articulated a new concept here, in addition to Kabbalah, that could be applicable in daily life. It's the notion of devakut, which means attachment or cleaving, It's the idea that when you are deep in genuine prayer, nearly trance-like in your devotion, you achieve devakut, attachment, with God. It can happen whenever you're deeply engaged in a sacred act, whether it's prayer, the study of Torah, the performance of the mitzvot, the commandments. Basically, whenever you are intensely focused on your mission of tikkun olam, repairing the world. And closely connected to devakut is kavana, meaning intention. What the best saw in the boy who blew a whistle on Yom Kippur was both Kavanah and Devakut. The boy had a genuine intention to pray to God, and in doing so achieved, or approached, the closeness with God associated with Devakut. So this was an extraordinary concept of democratization that turned millions of Jews into players in the Jewish drama, not just observers of the great scholars. The historian Marvin Goodman argues that Hasidism's emphasis on the religious experience of the individual Jew succeeded in establishing a new form of Judaism accepted by the majority of other Jews. It wasn't predicated on your needing deep knowledge of Torah, the intricacies of Jewish law, but instead on an intensely personal, sincere sense of devotion, focused on kavanah, intention, and devakut, attachment. And to achieve this, the best added another upheaval to traditional practice, by uniting prayer with the idea of joy. The Baal Shem Tov added another piece to the Kabbalistic idea of Devakut attachment, And that piece is Joyful Prayer. Sitting listless in synagogue and numbly rattling off the appropriate prayers in the appropriate order doesn't get you to kavanah, intention, or defekut, attachment. That simply reinforces the problem of traditional Judaism's stern legalism and brooding way of looking at the world. No, said the Baal Shem, worship is a joyful act. Observing the commandments is a joyful act. Engaging in the rituals to achieve closeness with God is a joyful act. Haim Hillel ben Sasson quotes the Besht as saying, quote, That physician is best who administers medicine within a drink as sweet as honey. Instead of mumbling prayers, the Baal Shem shouted them. Instead of holding ramrod still in his seat, the Besht leapt around, dancing. This was hitlachavut, or ecstasy. Martin Buber writes, quote, Repetition, the power which weakens and discolors so much in human life, is powerless before ecstasy, which catches fire again and again from precisely the most regular, most uniform events. End quote. Buber writes that this Hitlachavut, this ecstasy for the Hasid, is liberation, lifting us above everything earthly, destroying the evil impulse, and casting off all that is oppressive. It's the ultimate arousal of the soul bringing us to that singularity of Devekut, cleaving to God. Why should prayer and the service of the commandments not be joyful, when each time we do, we gather another piece of divine light, bringing the world closer to redemption and the coming of the Messiah? And that led the Baal Shem Tov to another conclusion, that the divine is therefore present in each and every act. Whatever you do and wherever you go, God is with you. And the more good deeds you do, the more acts of service you perform, the more commandments that you follow, the closer is the divine presence. I have an article here, I'm not sure the author, who writes that, quote, The Baal Shem Tov believed that every act, including the most mundane, could be a vehicle for holiness. And he taught that the pure-hearted service of even the most simple and uneducated Jew could rival those of the most learned, end quote. In other words, the best brought Kabbalah into everyday life on the premise that joyful, devoted worship and service would lift you to a higher level of existence, to a sense of closeness with God. This was the way out of the doldrums, the way to reclaim the uplifting spirit of Judaism that the best worried was being lost. It was a profoundly empowering message for the Jews of Eastern Europe, which gave rise to both a new movement, Hasidism, and a new type of Jewish leader, the Tzaddik. The Baal Shem Tov exemplified the tzaddik, meaning a righteous person. The tzaddik went beyond a rabbi or a local community leader and instead was a direct mediator between the ordinary people and the divine. Moshe Rasman writes that the best, quote, in contrast to the rabbis and mystics of his day, provided an example of religious leadership that was not only aloft in the world of the spirit, but also down to earth, involved in the mundane problems, end quote. The Tzaddik was someone who straddled two worlds at once, the upper planes of ecstasy and devakut, and the lower realm of daily life. Marvin Goodman writes that the Tzaddik, quote, is endowed with a special charisma, enabling him to mediate between believers and God, and to work miracles, bringing down the abundance of the divine to the material world. Any ordinary Jew could find a connection with God through allegiance to the Tzaddik, for whom he is by nature suited, end quote. In other words, when you encountered a tzaddik, you might think that you're looking at an ordinary person going about his day, down here in the real world with you in the grocery store, or at synagogue, or even at home. But that tzaddik was also conversing with God at an extremely high level, imbued throughout his whole being with devakut at every moment. And so by attaching yourself to this person, you too cleave closer to God. And it's a two-way street. Martin Buber quotes from Tzadik, who said that when he prayed, quote, "I bind myself with the whole of Israel, with those who are greater than I, that through them my thoughts may ascend, and with those who are lesser than I, that they may be uplifted through me." End quote. The Tzadik is required to bring other people along with him, and they in turn rely on the Tzadik as a spiritual guide who binds an entire community together. Martin Buber relates a story that the Baal Shem Tov told. Quote, Some men stood under a very high tree, and one of the men had eyes to see. He saw that in the top of the tree stood a bird, glorious with genuine beauty, but the others did not see it. And a great longing came over the man to reach the bird and take it, and he could not go from there without the bird. But because of the height of the tree, this was not in his power, and a ladder was not to be had. But because his longing was so overpowering, he found a way. He took the men who stood around him and placed them on top of one another, each on the shoulder of a comrade. He, however, climbed to the top so that he reached the bird and took it. And although the men had helped him, they knew nothing of the bird and did not see it. But he, who knew it and saw it, would not have been able to reach it without them. If, moreover, the lowest of them had left his place, then those above would have fallen to the earth," End quote. So this was a new model of Jewish community. Remember, the idea is not to sit by ourselves studying Torah all day long. The Baal Shem Tov instead emphasized individual and collective practice, devoted worship, prayer, and the joy of fulfilling commandments as the way to develop a personal connection with God. This isn't about uniting philosophical rationalism with the revelatory teachings of Torah. The Hasidim aren't interested in parsing the stories for metaphorical allusions that comply with scientific observations. This is instead about a rebirth of Jewish devotion out of the doldrums of the 17th century Eastern Europe. Mysticism and folklore, the spreading of stories about the miraculous workings of the Tzadikim like the Besht, These were the ways to reinvigorate a collective spirit that could have every Jew and every shtetl feel a closeness to God. The Baal Shem Tov ignited a new sense of mission and purpose in which the ordinary Jew's identity is caught up in their individual contribution to bringing about redemption, in which everyone has a role to play in the world to come. The Besh's influence, related and repeated through the many stories told about him, continued after his death in the year 1760. His students had themselves students, and those students had students, and so it went as Hasidism spread like wildfire across the rural plains of Eastern Europe. A hundred different sects were branched off, each one usually associated with a particular town and a particular student of the Baal Shem Tov. By the end of the 1800s, around half the Jews in Europe were Hasidic. Most were murdered in the Holocaust. There's around half a million Hasidic Jews today, and they are flourishing. The most well-known is the sect from the town of Lubavitch, known as Chabad. Located anywhere in the world that you'll find Jews, you can visit a Chabad house to experience for yourself the joy of worship and the spirit of practice pioneered by the Baal Shem Tov. It's one of the great spiritual revolutions of Jewish history, still very much alive today. The Baal Shem Tov and Hasidic Judaism emphasized religious practice and developed just as the modern age was beginning in the mid-1700s. This era, up to our own time, it brought new ideas and challenges to traditional orthodox practice. There were new approaches to Jewish life, tied into the notion that Judaism goes beyond a religious identity, and can instead be an ethnicity, or nationality, or even, according to our next thinker, a civilization. For our last episode this season, we'll be talking about the enormously influential 20th century American rabbi, Mordecai Kaplan, founder of the reconstructionist movement who brought Jewish culture and practice in line with modern society. As always, I'm at Know.com and my email is Know Podcast at gmail.com You can go to the website to sign up for my newsletter. I tend to not send one out too much, but I'm trying to do a few more. Thanks for listening, everyone. One more episode to go this season. Ten Jewish philosophers you want to know. Lethra out. See you later.